If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what's going on today? The Ontario legislature resumes today. And, of course, uh, uh, the number one issue for um, the opposition was the Green Belt. And, oddly enough, the province uh, says it's going to add another 7,000 acres to the Green Belt. There you go. I- I'm sorry, but I-, I think this is like the... Um, the tragically hip song, Nobody Cares About Something You Didn't Do. Uh, anyway, here's the premier talking about his total about face. He said he wasn't going to do it. Then he lied and he did it. Then he broke his lie and broke his promise and broke it all and did it and changed his mind again. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could actually get leaders that change their mind, admit they were wrong, apologize and move on? Think about where we might be as a country if we only had that. All right. Here's what the premier had to say. I was very clear on my message to, on Thursday to the people of Ontario. That, that's what you call leadership, admitting if there was a mistake, moving forward and making sure we go on with our agenda. But that's not going, that's, that is not going to deter us from building 1.5 million homes. So there you have it. Uh, but you know, another troubling story over the course of the weekend, we're hearing more about swarming events with young people at the fall fair. You know, we're always talking about the fall fairs. I love chatting about it and bringing the people on and giving their events a plug and stuff. And, you know, people are, are swarming. Remember, like, swarming a long time ago? And then it kind of went away. And, like, I mean, seriously, a few decades ago. Remember that? So why this is, well, you know. <laughs> We could spend the rest of the afternoon debating why. And wouldn't that be a depressing conversation? But anyway, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Um, whether uh, Winona Peach Festival, Festival of Friends, Bimbrook Fair, there was incidents of. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, and another massive embarrassment for the government of Canada and the prime minister and this specific, uh, specifically the speaker of the house, uh, speaker Rhoda and whether he falls on his sword, like he, uh, uh David Johnston had to, uh, we're going to have to wait and see. But during that, uh, that speech that we heard from, uh, president Zelensky, uh, Ukraine house filled with dignitaries filled with people. And, uh, not only is there, uh, um, um, a fellow or a former, sorry, Nazi in the house. Um, but also he's acknowledged as a hero and, you know, just a, a terrible, terrible embarrassment. And so the government, uh, or so the, the, uh, the speaker of the house, who I guess directly and said, Kate, today, it's my fault. I did it. I invited him. And at the end of the day, the rest of us are just having a hard time believing that there isn't somebody from the prime minister's office or somebody that's checking everybody that walks through the door of the House of Commons, especially when you've got a a president of a country who's in the midst of a damn war uh, over and above the security reasons uh, simply for um, 
you know, face. And then once again, everybody else has to fall on their sword for the prime minister, whether it's the speaker of the house. Uh, last week, it was the India situation. And, and then the whole public inquiry, Chinese Communist Party interference in the last two elections. David Johnson brought in, oh, no, no public inquiry needed here. Blah, 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 blah. Falls on the sword. Out he goes. What about the cabinet shuffle? Marco Mendicino, the safety minister. Where are all those people? falling one by one on their liberal swords Why the prime minister is in British Columbia. His man is being thrown under a bus in the House of Commons, and the prime minister sends in Christia Freeland. Does this man, what does he do? What does he ever take responsibility for? What is his job other than to blame others For his lack of management, supervision, parental guidance, anything. And then to have the speaker who everybody likes, appears that everybody's, you know, literally, like David Johnson, have to grivel and snobble his way through. Like, it was just a total embarrassment, not only in Canada, but also around the world. Because we had a head of state in whose country's at war with Russia. And you got a Nazi sitting in the in the gallery, and not only that, you acknowledge him. Yes, the speaker should have known better, but so should, so should a prime minister's office who for who, who 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 oversees all of this stuff. They're the ones in command. They're driving the bus, or are they? It, 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 there's not going to be any liberals left. Because they'll all will have fallen on their swords, and the prime minister just walks away. It, it's amazing to see. It's ama- especially after the India stuff. It's just one, one, one bit of chaos. You know, removes the the storyline from the day before. It, it's incredible. We'll see where this one goes. We always love it when Dr. Elena Hyde, director of the Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, is here because it means something cool has happened in space. Or more so, back here, a rare asteroid sample has been brought back to Earth, and uh, everybody uh, can't wait to find out what's inside. And to talk more about it, Dr. Elena Hyde, Director, Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics, Astronomy, York University. Elena, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Absolutely. I think uh, all of us who are watching on Sunday are very well, indeed. It was quite exciting to see, of course, the asteroid sample capsule come in. It was on NASA Live TV, so a bunch of us were all watching it, I'm sure. Um, But then, of course, it landed in the desert just south of the border, uh, Utah, I believe. And they had helicopters. They ran to the helicopters and they chased it down. And, of course, they got this asteroid sample back on Earth. And this is pretty cool because the asteroid that they got a sample of is called Bennu. And it's one of our more mysterious, uh, I suppose, neighbors out there in the solar system. Why is it? Why is that? Well, a couple good reasons. One is that it actually has an orbit that takes it fairly close to Earth. Um, it has had a close approach in uh, 1999, um, and we think that it might be a candidate for something that could potentially, maybe even one day, collide uh, if its orbit is unstable enough. But of course, it's also interesting because it's an asteroid. It's part of the primordial uh, formation of the solar system. So if we can understand what it's made of, 
we might actually understand something about how the solar system itself came together. It's kind of cool when you're, and, and you know, I, I think I've been talking to you guys long enough. I, I, I probably talked about talked to you when this when this went up seven years ago. Um, but it, it almost seems like this is a. Uh, it happens a lot, but there's a lot to be done between point A and point B over seven years. Talk about what this mission was. Yes, absolutely, and of course, it's not just all about the asteroid and the sample return. OSIRIS-REx, which is the name of the mission, has been out there for quite a while. And of course, it's it's got a perfect name because it's called Rex and it went and fetched us an asteroid sample. Um, but it's actually done so much more than that. It's out there exploring um, all kinds of wonderful things. And it's got a whole bunch of different instruments on it to help it analyze various things. And uh, one of our favorites here at York is the, the OLA, which uses LIDAR, and that's from another scientist at York University, Michael Daly. He's the lead instrument scientist on that. It allows us to scan the surface. And so when OSIRIS-REx went around Bennu, it actually scanned the surface good enough that we can make 3D models. Um, so if you have a 3D printer, you can literally print yourself out a 3D mm-hmm. model of this, uh, of this wow. asteroid. And so it did all of this and brought the sample back, and the spacecraft is actually still going. It dropped it. Uh, it dropped the sample off, and it is kept going out into the solar system, uh, and it's going to explore more asteroids. You know, it's incredible the information that you're going to get from this, Elena. But just even the fact that the craft can do this and then continue on—it's <laughs> just incredible when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been mentioned before. Of course, all of this has been done. Um, for, you know, all things considered, a fairly reasonable price tag and without any um, any need for humans to be in space. And humans in space is very fun, but it's also very, very, very difficult. Mm. So the thing that the, that's really exciting for a lot of us who love spacecraft is that you can do these really advanced uh, maneuvers robotically. And so we do have a sample of an asteroid now and I believe today, so Monday is 25th, that sample is on its way to uh, to NASA, um, I believe the Johnson Space Center, where it's going to be held. And then, of course, Canada is going to get its portion as well. It was interesting. I was watching some of the coverage of that. And maybe the, av- uh, the average layperson doesn't realize this, but how important it was that that sample is not contaminated. In other words, you just open up a jar and go, hey, look, because everything that's here now is in there. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how and how you virtually keep this free of contamination. Yeah, that was something that they had to take into account when they were designing the capsule because they wanted to be able to capture um, material from Bennu and only material from Bennu. And of course, in outer space, that's not a problem. Uh, there's no, there's nothing to, uh, nothing else to catch, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but once you get to Earth, we have air, we have water, we have clouds. It landed in Utah, and there was sand and, and dirt in the, you know, in the desert there. And of course, all of that stuff we actually don't want when we're analyzing the sample because it can con- contaminate our readings and give us false results and false hope. <laughs> but um, sp- contamination of of uh, space bodies by our own sort of Earth debris is something mm-hmm. that comes up quite often in exploration, and we want to be very careful that we don't disturb some other system out there by our own, um, you know, sort of Earth uh, presence. 
What do you hope to find? What what do uh, scientists hope to find from this sample? Well, um, some of us are hoping for water. <laughs> um, I honestly, I'm just uh, excited to learn anything new, and that is unavoidable. Hmm. With this kind of a sample, we don't we don't know what exactly it's going to have in its composition. If there is water, as some people have suspected, um, that would mean that we could change our models and find out, um, you know, how maybe Earth got its water, which is a big mystery in the solar system currently. So I hope they find I hope they find a bit of water, but that's just my own hope. Um, obviously, the grams of uh, sample rocks that they found part of that coming back to uh, Canada is going to be great because then we'll get to study it locally as well. Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Uh, OSIRIS-REx, after seven years, brings back a rare asteroid sample. And uh, you can hear by the passion, they can't wait to find out what it's like and what's inside. Elena, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. And it is actually up tonight about uh, 3 a.m. the asteroid venue, if you've got a good telescope. There you go. We certainly know what has happened uh, in regard to the Greenbelt situation. Uh, the premier saying, nope, not going to touch the Greenbelt. And, and then he breaks that promise and says he is going into the Greenbelt and then breaks that one and says, no, I'm not. I'm going back to the original one and apologizes for doing any of it. And now we move on. So is it that easy or is there fallout from not continuing on with these deals? Uh, should there be more investigation into something that didn't happen? Uh, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk more or should we, uh, any, where, where should our focus be perhaps? Let's bring in Mike Collins, William, CEO of the West End Home, uh, Home Builders Association and here now. Mike, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Doing so, uh, fantastic on this beautiful Monday afternoon. It is nice. Mike, your your thoughts. Is there fallout from this? I mean, politically, many are saying, oh, he's done whatever. I don't care about political uh, rep reputations here. One rear end, uh, one rat's rear end here. Uh, is there fallout from a home building standpoint? Is there deals that were there that aren't there? It's lawsuits, what have you. What's the fallout from this reversal? Well, I think regardless of the decision, Ontario's housing supply and affordability crisis remains. So governments at all levels and the residential construction industry, the development industry, you know, we, we've still got to, we've got to work together to build the 1.5 million homes that this province needs by 2031. So we all know that there's a huge challenge ahead of us. It's getting bigger every day and we owe it to every new home buyer, every renter, every new Canadian landing in Ontario to ensure that they have a roof over their heads. And, and meeting that challenge is going to require a focused effort looking forward on how to reduce red tape, how to lower the cost of construction. And you know, one of the biggest things is addressing the profound skilled labor shortage in the province. So I know that our members in the Hamilton area and the development community and right across Ontario, for that matter, are, are ready to work with the provincial government with municipalities and with the federal government to develop the right policies to get this big job done. So what is um, what is the Home Builders Association view of this reversal? Is it good or is it bad? Or you're not just, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Let's just clear the, the playing field and let's get started. I think our focus is looking forward in terms of what's next. Um, you know, the government has made, and not just the provincial government, the provincial and the federal government, 
have been leaning heavily into housing policy uh, the last number of years. And, you know, not everything has hit the right mark, uh, but a lot of things have been successful. And I think the challenge is with the amount of population growth um, that governments do need to make difficult decisions. Sometimes they need to make unpopular decisions and sometimes things don't land. So they've got to pivot, move on and, and figure out what the next item is. So for example, today, the Ontario legislature was back first day back after the summer and they introduced a new piece of legislation, the Transportation for the Future Act, um, you know, a high level name, but um, you know, what it's focused on is transit oriented communities being built around GO stations and enabling municipalities to raise new revenues from those communities to build new GO stations. There'll be a new station contribution fee. So, you know, well, well one piece of policy the government has pivoted on, um, they're looking towards something else uh, and now focused on, on GO stations. So in your mind, from a Builders Association perspective, is the Greenbelt issue, it's over, all right, what's next? Here we go. That's essentially it. You know, the, the, the Greenbelt... Um, was an option that the provincial government looked at, uh, didn't work out. Um, we still need to build 1.5 million homes uh, across Ontario, uh, just under 50,000. That the, the target for Hamilton's 47,000, uh, and and for any of your listeners in Burlington, the target's 29,000. Um, these are significant targets. It's more than doubling housing production. Uh, so if you're not going to build houses on one piece of land, you, you've got to build homes uh, in different areas. Um, so at the end of the day, it's it's about achieving that objective and that number uh, less so than the specifics of, of where it's going to go. That being said, all levels of government really do need to roll up their sleeves, work together, identify where we need to we need to build and and remove that red tape and let's get going. Uh, one, uh, I think, and, and, you know, I've had people question why the government did this and whether this was a response, what have you. But uh, the one thing that the debate has done is it's drawn attention to the fact that we don't have to touch the green belt. We got this 20 to 40 years worth of land. But of course, then the big question is, well, why have there not been homes built on that over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? So it's really ha- has drawn attention to those alternative lands that there's still a shortage of. Um, as far as municipalities and even developers, does that put more pressure on them to get that done? You know, there's, there's always pressure. Uh, and I think the pressure has been amplified the last number of years. And, you know, just because there's land doesn't mean it's it's ready to go. So right. there is an area between the green belts and the existing urban area that's been called the White Belt. It was coined yep. the White Belt back in 2006 uh, when the previous provincial government brought in the Green Belt and they brought in something called the Growth Plan. Um, and it was essentially a, a plan for intensification, focusing more on transit, also focusing on those White Belt lands uh, with a method in which every 10 years municipalities um, could expand their urban boundaries into those white belt lands. And that's what exactly what happened in Hamilton uh, a year ago. Those white belt lands are part of the urban boundary expansion, which is a completely separate thing than the whole uh, green belt discussion. Mm. Uh, the city of Hamilton's professional planning staff uh, did identify that the city of Hamilton needed to expand into those areas. And ultimately the province made a decision about a year ago 
um, for the city of Hamilton to expand into those white belt areas. And similar decisions were made in other municipalities um, across the province, uh, be it in the greater Toronto or Hamilton area, or be it up in Ottawa, or other growing municipalities like London, Ontario. We're, we're growing it at an unprecedented rate. Most of that growth can occur th in, through intensification, through areas like along Hamilton's future LRT, GO stations in Toronto along the subway. But there are some people that still want to live in ground-oriented homes with a backyard, a deck. And if they can't get those homes in Hamilton, they'll buy those homes in Shelburne or Tilsonburg and they will commute mm. vast distances. Mm. Um, what we've heard many people talk about, um, you know, obviously, well, how do we get here? This blaming, whatever. And I'm, I'm the first to do that. Cause I still want to know what the heck happened. That being said, many have said to me in response that, you know, developers are just buying big chunks of land. They're just sitting on it. They're not doing anything with it. They're not, no, 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 no. they're vacant landlords. Um, is there truth to that? What, what is being done to speed that up? Developers have been buying land since the dawn of time. So, yeah, exactly. you know, there are some yeah. parcels of land that have been owned by certain companies since the 1950s, 60s, or 70s. And there's other parcels of land that were perhaps bought and sold today. Um, the land development industry, it, it takes a long, long time to get approvals. So some of the areas in the Hamilton boundary expansion areas have been owned uh, by development companies for decades. and They've been patiently waiting, knowing that we're in a growing region, um, for that land to be brought in the urban boundary. And and the same story plays out across Ontario yeah. that certain mm -hmm. folks in growing municipalities, growing cities will buy a parcel of land at the edge of the city, knowing that someday mm -hmm. um, that whether it's housing, industrial, commercial, uh, that the city will, will grow. Um, in terms of sitting on land, you know, Builders want to build. They're, they're, they're pushing projects through the planning approvals process. Um, this is an impatient industry in terms of wanting to move things forward. Um, but there are other challenges beyond planning approvals, whether it's labor supply shortages. And the big one right now is, frankly, the Bank of Canada interest rates. Mm. You've got to remember, it's not just the, the listeners that are concerned about what their mortgage rates are when you're building a $100 million project at an 8% or 9% construction loan or construction financing, that's a lot different than 3 or 4%, especially when you're talking about projects that take years and years and years to complete. Um, unfortunately, we're in a situation right now where the economics and finances around land development and housing, it's pretty bad out there. Mike Collins Williams with us, CEO West Ham, uh, West End Home Builders Association on the reversal of the Greenbelt decision. And at the end of the day, still need the houses. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a great day. The latest from Carson Jarama. Maybe now the Trudeau liberals will stop ignoring national security is the headline in the National Post. Growing intelligent leaks give uh, give credibility to the allegation that India is behind the killing of a Canadian citizen. And I bet you this was penned long before we hear what we're hearing today regarding the Speaker of the House. Carson is with us now. Carson, thank you for the time. Comment editor with the National Post. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, considering this story here that I, I've just quoted the headline, and now what's happening with the, with the speaker today, um, you know, you're talking about are they now going to get uh, serious about national security? 
honestly, Carson, my first question is who's driving the bus here? I mean, whether yeah. you think about uh, what you're writing about here in regard to India, which was last week, what's happening with the Speaker of the House, uh, go back to the cabinet shuffle, uh, no public inquiry, but then there is David Johnston falling on the sword, Jody Wilson-Raybould. I mean, it just never ends. There is there is a there is a, a, um, a sort of like a constant cycle of, uh, of scandals and particularly scandals that are seem kind of uh, that just seem, seem kind of ridiculous and kind of silly, um, but also in, in a lot of ways have a lot of like serious effect. Right. So the I wrote this column yesterday morning and then in the afternoon, of course, everyone was talking about after we wrote on that. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's going to look a little old now. Um, but, but it's not. It's all the same. It's another example of and there's plenty of them. Yeah, and it's just like it's like little fumbles, right? So this is it's this is not the worst thing in the world the government could do, but it is kind of ridiculous that a government does this. A government that has spent all its time calling the opposition far right and all this other stuff. And here's an actual soldier, a veteran, who fought with a Nazi regiment in World War II, like someone who actually fought for the Nazis in World War II. And and so on its isolated on its own, it's ridiculous um, and offensive. It shouldn't have happened, but on its own, big deal. But when you start to put it together into with um, the way Canada deals with India, whether or not India is responsible for the killing is one thing. How in Canada has decided to deal with that, address that issue is a completely different thing. Um, how Canada dealt with Chinese interference earlier this year, uh, the government spent months trying to say, uh, asking questions about foreign interference. They try to, you know, that the people who are, you're trying to, you know, they accuse you're, you're attacking democracy like Trump would, or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and these are these are not like this is all just like very performative. There's no there's like this no substance. Um, like at the end of the day, this thing that happened in Parliament does not affect our policy, but it also kind of <laughs> is in line with the way the government makes policy, especially in relation to foreign foreign affairs, because in foreign affairs everything just becomes uh, subordinated to domestic politics and domestic interests. And you miss things like this. If you don't actually take foreign affairs seriously, that then you would admit it makes sense that you would miss a detail like the veteran fought for the other side of the war in the war. You bring up a, a valid point, Carson. You said miss things. And that's it, that's my point here. It's like it, there, there's a lack of basic management skill here. And when there's difficulty, um, you know, we're banging off the guardrails here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, um, there's, there is like just the the sort of like the because they're so focused on one thing, the things that the, the checks that we one thing being like whatever their whatever voting block they're interested in this time or how they want to they want, what they want to how they want to angle the conservatives in the polls how they want to keep Jagmeet Singh on on side, um, you know whether it's uh, going after blaming inflation. Uh, whether one day saying inflation is a global problem, it's a complex problem, and don't you dare to accuse the government of being responsible for it. And then the next day, well, it's actually the grocery store's fault is for inflation. Hmm. And like, whenever you look at these things, the because the focus is so on, often appears anyway. I mean, I could be wrong, but I mean, like, it appears to be just so f- focused on what does the next poll say? How do we keep Jagmeet Singh on? How do we make Polyev look bad? Because folks on these things. The actual business of government gets neglected and you have like you trip over things. The government's just constantly tripping over um, 
things. And it has a lot of these like little minor scandals that happen. Well, some of them are larger, like with the yeah. SNC Lavalin, but a lot of these like little minor ridiculous scandals that just start to pile up. So in regard to your column, Carson, we only got a few seconds left. Does this change? Are they going to keep ignoring this stuff? I mean, does anything change with the, how they view it? I would like to think that if the Indian allegations are proven true, I would like to think that this would mean government might open its eyes a little bit about a little bit about national security and how how it takes things like security intelligence and national defense. Um, do I think? I mean, I'd like to think that will happen. I I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm only so. I, I guess I can say I'm only so optimistic. Carson Drama with us, comment editor with the National Post, the latest. Maybe now the Trudeau liberals will stop ignoring national security. Carson, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Unifor has ratified its deal with Ford Motor Company of Canada, and it's being described as precedent-setting. The U.S. still having some issues. It's a different system, a different uh, set of unions down there than it is up here. Uh, To decode it all, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University. And here now, Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be here. Why is this being described as precedent-setting? Well, it's a large contract, and there's lots of moving pieces to it. Uh, We can start with the economic one. The workers are getting a 10% wage increase in year one, 3% in year two, 2% in year three, but uh, also cost of living allowances are back. So depending upon what that is, let's say it's 3 to 4% a year cost of living adjustment. By the time this is done, this could be a 25% increase in wages over three years. As well, it appears that uh, defined benefit uh, pension plans are back. At the moment, many workers are on a defined contribution plan, but the theory is that in early 2025, all of those workers will be able to come back into the defined benefit pension plan. So that's big news. As well, there's promises around uh, investments at Ford facilities in Ontario around electric vehicles. So lots of stuff moving on there. One dark cloud, if you want to call it that, is that while the deal was ratified, it was only with 54% of the vote, 46% of people did not vote for it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are two reasons. Again, one is uh, what's going on in the United States. Those workers are out, and there's always the worry that, well, maybe they'll get something a lot better than we have. We should maybe wait and see what they're getting. So it's just an accident of timing. These things are at the same time. But also, um, I think the question is, again, do, does everyone understand it? There are so many moving pieces in this deal. I'm not sure the average person can understand what it all means for them. It sounds like it's pretty good for the workers. Well, I think it's good, but I think the question is always is, could it be better? Remember, in the United States, uh, the UAW has asked for an immediate, an immediate 20% increase and 5% a year over four years. You put that all together, that's 40%. I can make the argument this is going to get you 25, but if the Americans are getting 40, maybe maybe we shouldn't have ratified it. Uh, how What sort of rippling effect does that have in other aspects, not only of this industry, but the economy? Well, let's start with this industry. As you know, Unifor uses what's called template negotiations. So now that they have a deal with Ford, 
they're going to go to somebody. They haven't told us who. So it'll either be Stellantis or it'll be General Motors uh, to see if they can use that template to hammer out a deal there. Uh, so for this industry, if they can get similar kinds of agreements at the other two, again, I think to me, the big win here is Ontario itself, that the idea that our auto industry is going to remain vibrant for at least another couple of decades, especially as electric vehicles come in. But I'll also say that Unifor was representing all those nice workers at Metro that were on strike. And it'll be interesting to hear what they think. Uh, the deal that they got from Metro is not the same as the deal that Unifor got for Ford. And will this now set a precedent? In particular, that immediate 10% wage increase I can imagine lots of people who would like to see an immediate 10% wage increase. So is that going to ripple through in future agreements? Again, the bright spot is that year two and year three are actually relatively, I'll say, okay from an economic standpoint, 3%, 2%. The fear if I was the Bank of Canada was that that 10% would get baked in every year going forward, and that would have inflationary impacts on the economy. But a one-year catch-up, and that's really the way it's being built, that's okay. We can live with that. Uh, and obviously, different sets of negotiations going on in the U.S. Does one affect the other now that Canada is signing deals? Uh, or is it just a case of, hey, if supplies dry, uh, dry up on one side of the border, then you know the other side can't uh, produce either? Well, I guess it's both of those things. So I, I would like to believe that Unifor was in contact with the UAW to say, here's what we're getting from Ford in Canada. Here's what we are settling for in Canada. So they're, they're released be, they'd understand where each side was coming from on all of this. Uh, we'd hate to see one union pitted against another union. To your larger question, though, we've, we've now got a peace at Ford in Canada. On the other hand, the United States is actually getting a little more out of control because they didn't have a deal uh, by last Thursday at midnight. On Friday, they the UAW expanded the number of places that they were striking. And this time around, the first time it was assembly plants, so that wouldn't have had much impact on the flow of parts. But this second time around now, it is parts, but parts to dealerships, not parts to manufacturing, parts to dealerships. So again, I think what they're trying to do is put pressure and yet not necessarily cause the people on the other side of the border to be shut down. So again, depends how far this goes. The last time there was a big strike in the United States, it went six weeks. It could get worse before it gets better. You were talking about Metro and the deal that they recently signed, and we certainly know the situation and the love that uh, people have for the grocery business nowadays. Right. What does this do for future negotiations across all industries? Obviously, these are pretty big gains. Yeah, these are. And I think everyone who's who's got a contract, you know, just recently, for instance, the city of Hamilton workers uh, have a ratified a deal, but everyone who's got a contract coming up will be looking at this and saying, well, look, if the Unifor could get us 10% in the first year, why can't you get us something like that as we go? And remember, the big unionized environments are less and less manufacturing places and more and more services. So um, anyone remember teachers? They tend to go out on a strike. Anyone remember you know, mm -hmm. uh, nurses and healthcare mm -hmm. workers? So all of these people are looking at this and wondering, how does that uh, impact my part of the world? And it will be used as it will be put in management space. If they can do it, why can't you? Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, uh, Unifor and Ford ratifying a deal and looking for the same in the United States eventually. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you.
Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I wish to apologize to the House, and I'm deeply sorry that I've offended many in my, with my gestures and remarks. That's Speaker of the House Rhoda, who uh, earlier today um, uh, apologized for drawing attention and bringing someone to the event the other day where uh, Ukraine President Zelensky was speaking. And you might remember an incredibly passionate day, passionate speech. Place was just jammed, lots of dignitaries and I'm sure high security as uh, as uh, President Zelensky was speaking in the House of Commons. The speaker then refers to somebody who's in the gallery and honors them. It turns out that he uh, fought with the Nazis uh, during the Second World War, and the embarrassment ensues. Um, the speaker fell on his sword today, saying it was all his fault, that uh, it's him that made this decision, which, again, you... you if that's the case, then that doesn't seem right either. Uh, it would appear that the government of the day is responsible for taking attendance and standing at the door and making sure everybody that gets through is vetted and they know exactly who they are. Uh, to get his take of all of this, Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very well, Scott. How are you today? Good. Uh, Phil, your thoughts on what's happened with all of this? I mean, I, you know, it, we should be still talking about India, but obviously that's last week's news. What are your thoughts? Uh, squirrel, there's, there's something else we need to talk about. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a rough couple of weeks for the Trudeau government. You know, you talked about his disastrous trip to India, then the allegations that India may have had a role in the murder of a Canadian. And before that, you and I talked about this at length, Scott, the whole Chinese interference thing, they dropped the ball on this, and now and now we have this particular incident, which is really more embarrassing than anything else. There was no real threat yeah. to Mr. Zelensky, but I think Canadians are asking the very fair question, does this government have any idea what it's doing right now? That's really what it is. I mean, and it seems that uh, the government is, well, you know, it's up to the minister. And Minister Champlain uh, said something like uh, uh, he has some thinking to do <laughs> as if, yeah, I mean, my goodness, uh, what kind of uh, influence is that? But it, at the end of the day, it, it you hit the nail on the head. It just they don't who's driving the bus. They don't seem to know what's how to manage the situation. Well, in fairness, you know, governments have an awful lot on their plates. Uh, I've never been a minister. I've met with deputy ministers. They're very busy individuals. They have a lot to think about. But that's why they have paid staff, Scott, is to point these things out to make sure that incidents like this, which uh, cause a great deal of embarrassment to the prime minister and his cabinet, don't happen uh, in the first place. And so, again, the question then becomes, um, who was minding the store when this decision was made? So, again, let's not make too much out of this. Like, this is not a threat to national security, which you and I often talk about. But it is indicative, I think, of a government that's kind of lost the plan when it comes to many things. And it's just one more thing for Canadians to look in the mirror and say, um, are these guys really still competent to be uh, the government? <laughs> or are they past their best before date? So who 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 decides who gets in? What is that process? And and again, as you said, I, I don't think we're threatened against a 98 year old um, person who fought in the war. But if the question is, if he's getting in, who else is? Well, and that's a very good question. Um, you would certainly hope. And I and I've been on the Hill. I've you know I've been to uh, the Senate. I've been to the House of Commons. Met with MPs. Met with senators. 
and I go through a vetting process. And, you know, I spent 32 years in Intel and I still have to go through the same, you know, providing of information and such. You, you sort of have to wonder, was this a favor to somebody? You remember a while back, uh, getting back to India, Scott, when the prime minister brought uh, a Sikh extremist on his trip to India? I mean, who yeah, yeah. these people in the first place? So, no, you know, it's carelessness at a minimum. It's embarrassing. And uh, I think Canadians, again, are asking the question, like, is this government capable of doing anything? Because they're making so many simple mistakes, Scott, that really shouldn't be made in the first place. So how does the world view this? How does Zelensky, Ukraine, view this? Oh, I'm guessing not too positively. Um, in the talks that I have with my friends, and these are friends, not just Canadians, and you know, in my former line of business, but uh, you know, allied powers, I, there's a real question now about um, what is Canada up to? And we can't afford not to have those alliances. We're, we're a net, you know, getting back to the intel and, and security question, we're a net importer of information. Yes, we provide our own. We have great people that see us in the RCMP, et cetera, but we get a lot more than we actually dish out. And, you know, when you've got allied powers saying, well, you, you did what was our intelligence or you didn't do what was our intelligence, it just puts, I think, puts questions in their minds as to whether or not Canada has the wherewithal and the mechanisms in place to treat all this information seriously. And that, that's never a good day because we rely on our, on our alliances for so many things. Um, getting back to uh, the situation with India, and, you know, we heard a couple of days later that he, uh, the Prime Minister got intel from uh, the Five Eyes and other people and yeah. so on, as if that changed anything. But it wasn't the Five Eyes who said something, it was the Prime Minister. Um, so, obviously, if you get information, you get information, it's what you do with it. What perhaps should he have done rather than just dropping this bomb in the House of Commons and setting off this ripple? Well, he, sh he certainly should not have avowed publicly that we got intelligence from an allied partner, be it a Five Eyes partner or whatever it is. You don't do that for a couple of reasons. A, it embarrasses the, the allied essentials intelligence. Secondly, you know, the people against whom we're spying can put two, to do, two and two together and figure out, well, how are we getting the information? Is it signals intelligence? Is it human intelligence? How is it that Canada knows this? And when you work in the intel business, Scott, and your methods and, and or your sources are betrayed publicly, you lose those methods and sources. And that, that's terrible when you work in intel. He should have basically either raised it on the QT with the Indians, you know, bilaterally, or talked to his American counterparts. Again, uh, sort of inner sanctum, you know, not outwardly like that. But he wanted to make a point. I guess he made his point. And again, further to my earlier point, I'm sure our American allies are saying, what is the prime minister of Canada doing with our intelligence and why is he avowing it publicly? Does this change um, a government's view of foreign registries, foreign in, in interference? I mean, boy, it seems all pretty obvious now that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing here. Does this will, will this change things moving forward, do you think? Will it change process procedures? If I had the answer to that, Scott, I'd be starting goaltender for the league. <laughs> that's not going to happen. This is definitely a government that has no idea what it's doing with all this information. You know, I mean, in some ways, I'm sure the Prime Minister says, thank God for India, because now I can stop worrying about China again. And we all know that, yeah. you know, I've you know, talked about it. It's been going on for years. So I don't know, Scott. It just seems to be, you talk about left hand, right hand, left foot, right foot, uh, left elbow, right elbow. I don't know what to expect next. I wake up in the morning and say, what you know? What's in the top of the news today? Because it's sure going to be a surprise. How does uh, how does Canada move forward with its relations uh, with India on this while conducting an investigation? 
Great question. It's funny, you know, you and I are talking here, you know, in the late afternoon on a Monday. I've, I've done interviews with India Television, India Radio today, and I can mm. tell you India is not happy right now with Canada mm. about the allegations and what they're saying about India and whether or not it's true. And I, I don't have any insight on that. Uh, this is not the way you conduct diplomacy. If we have serious concerns about possible Indian involvement, we present that information to the Indians and let and maybe it's a rogue element in India. Who knows? Um, but no, this is not the way you, that you conduct foreign affairs is, you know, from the, uh, you know, from your seat in parliament. I, and he should know that as a prime minister, that this makes more enemies than friends at the end of the day. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talking about uh, the crisis du jour. Phil, thanks for the time. Who knows what we'll be talking about a week from now. Thanks so much. <laughs> I wait your call next week, Scott. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Phil. You take care. All right. Um, you know, it's it's amazing because it seems there's so many uh, crises happening. Y- y- you can't finish talking about one before there's another one thrown in your lap. I uh, want to bring Charles Burton in, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Talk about the future of an Indo-Pacific strategy, trade strategy, uh, obviously with uh, the huge tensions we have now with the government of India. Um, but today with the Speaker of the House and the whole situation about uh, a Nazi being in attendance when President Zelensky was speaking, uh, we move on to another crisis, and I have to ask him about his opinion of all of this. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Interests Abroad, McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. It's good to speak with you. Charles, there's always not, not enough time in too many issues, it seems, of late. What are your thoughts? Let's start with the situation with the Speaker of the House. Um, he has fallen on the sword, taken full responsibility for this. Many are saying, at the end of the day, the government of the, of the day should be responsible for checking the door and vetting everybody. What are your thoughts on this latest embarrassment? I, you know, I think it's unfortunate. He has, Mr. Rote has been an excellent speaker and all the yeah. parties agree that he's a good referee in the House of Commons, such as one can maintain order there. Uh, the problem really is that while it wasn't his intention to, you know, praise uh, uh, someone who supported the Nazis in the last war, a very elderly gentleman, uh, in fact, that's what he did. And so, you know, he got the entire um, House of Commons and all the visitors there to to greet uh, the speech by President Zelensky to clap and laugh and smile at this old gentleman that turns out to be not as advertised. With someone from Mr. Rota's writing, he should have vetted it properly. I think that the embarrassment that he caused the House by, you know, deceiving people into thinking that they were applauding someone who was a hero of um, the anti-communist movement, but in fact, who was supporting Adolf Hitler, uh, is sufficient that he should really step down. I think he has no choice. Um, We remember not long ago having this discussion over David Johnston. Um, He he has admitted uh, it was his mistake that he made the call. But where are the checks and balances in place, Charles? I mean, so one man... Here, I I think Canadians just wonder what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think clearly we need to be vetting these people uh, coming into the House of Commons better, particularly if they're going to be recognized by the Speaker. I think I think that he it just hadn't occurred to him that he could be introducing a, a supporter of uh, Nazi fascism in the House of Commons. You know, it's a long time ago, and there aren't too many of them left, but this man was one of them. Uh, you know, it, it it's just regrettable because it wasn't really his fault. It was more neglect on the part of his staff. But 
I think that uh, the embarrassment caused to the House and the necessity to have an absolutely pristine, non-controversial speaker suggests that he has to go. Uh, some have said a simple Google search would have done this. And, and again, this man's certainly not of a threat uh, of anyone, symbolic, uh, a more symbolic embarrassment than anything. But some are also asking, well, if this person gets in, who else is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it took about half a minute for, you know, Jewish community organizations in Canada to issue their protest. They knew yeah. exactly who this Nazi supporter was. But yeah, I mean, that is a question. It's not that hard to vet people these days with electronic means. All of the parliamentarians have staff and they should, you know, get them to sit down for half an hour and go through the guest list and make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Uh, and again, this isn't just a big uh, government brouhaha. This is hosting a president who is at war with Russia. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes Mr. Zelensky look bad. It provides uh, propaganda for the Russians who say, you know, oh, look at that. The Canadian Parliament supports Nazism. And, um, and uh, you know, there's some degree of, of question about the security in Parliament when you can let in people who have this in their past that we didn't know about. I mean, you remember when... Prime Minister Trudeau was in India the previous time. Um, he invited uh, a, a convicted yeah. terrorist to attend a diplomatic reception who had his photograph taken with uh, Mr. Trudeau's now ex-wife. It was pretty bad. You know, like uh, you just in this day and age, we just have to be um, much more scrupulous about who who we take pictures with. And, you know, politicians like to glad hand anybody who comes along. Maybe that's not such a good idea. What about the worldview of this? And, and, and again, uh, a mistake was made, but, but even beyond that and in, in sort of the compilation of all of these. Well, I mean, I think that in, in general, you know, it's just important that we know where we stand and we know who we're standing next to and that we not give credence to people who, um, you know, have reputations of activities that are violent or, you know, at diametric um, odds with Canadian values. You know, every once in a while, a politician will be will find he's had his picture taken with um, some white supremacist crazy or something. You know, that just shouldn't happen. It it uh, it it just makes them look very bad. And it makes us look very lax in terms of how we vet people who come to these celebratory events. Uh, obviously, only got a limited time left here, Charles, but update on India. Where does this go? How does this investigation unfold? Well, I mean, you know, you wonder. I mean, the, the three guys or two guys are not sure if it was two guys that opened up those automatic weapons into the truck window and and killed uh, Mr. Niger. Uh, they they're long gone. So are they going to be able to do an investigation that will actually result in some criminal charges or a request for extradition from, say, India of these um, gangsters who who killed a, a Canadian citizen in an extrajudicial sling? Um, I, I'm doubtful. I mean, we couldn't even figure out uh, and get proper um, convictions for the Air India bombing back in 1984, mm -hmm. where 369 people died presumably at the hands of uh, Sikh extremists who were retaliating for um, uh, activities that in, in the Golden Temple in Amritsar where the Indians went in and took extremists out of there. So, you know, we have these cases, they're egregious, but it seems that our law enforcement is just not able to produce the results. So I'm, 
I hope that we can get some resolution, find out exactly who did it, who's responsible, make them accountable and, and address the matter appropriately. And I have a feeling this thing may just hang for a very long time and we won't be getting anywhere. In the meantime, Canada-Indian relations fester. The Indo-Pacific policy is basically toast. And uh, a lot of people will say, well, we just have to keep trading with China instead. A lot of stuff seems to be just hanging. Uh, Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a good afternoon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, Ontario Parliament resumed today. The ledge is back in business. And, of course, uh, just a few days ago, uh, the Premier drops a bomb and said we're going to completely reverse uh, the Greenbelt decision. Uh, out of the Greenbelt, that's gone. And the need to build 1.5 million homes continues. Uh, what does this mean for this current session? And what is the fallout from the reversal of fortune for the Greenbelt? Andrew McDougall with his assistant professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law with the University of Toronto. And here now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Always thrilled to be on the show. Uh, so thank you so much for the time, Andrew. Um, obviously, there's going to be political fallout for uh, the premier on this. What does it do as far as uh, development and the green belt? Are there going to be lawsuits about the green belt? What, what, is that decision over? Is it done? Is it gone? Are we moving on? How, what is the fallout from the reversal? Well, I suspect there'll probably be lawsuits that will come out of this, although I don't have any information on, on any of that. Uh, I mean, they've now promised that they're going to essentially go back to not touching the green belt, reverse all of the decisions that they've made. And so undoubtedly, there are going to be some people that are disappointed in that, uh, depending on whether or not they suffered any, uh, uh, you know, or any alleged uh, losses from that. I'm sure that'll end up uh, end up in court. But I think the government has made it pretty clear that they're not interested in going forward with this issue anymore. They've apologized for it. It's over. They're going to do some stuff, some legislation to reverse it. Uh, and I think they're hoping that they're going to move on from uh, from this whole story. Does it affect the housing debate, or is this just a political scar for them? Uh, I mean, the housing debate is obviously raging all over the country. This is still going to keep going, I think, in Ontario. But I think it was pretty clear that the Green Belt was a very emotional issue for people. And mm-hmm. as much as they want... Uh, as much as they want housing, uh, going after the green belt was not really the way that I think a lot of people wanted to see them do it. And so, while that issue is still there, uh, it looks like the green belt is not going to be part of any possible solution going forward. All right, what does this do for his political career moving forward? He said uh, when he made this decision a few days ago, you can decide on voting day. Uh, I guess it's still a ways away before that. What does this do politically? Can does the opposition still have hay to make here? Well, they're certainly going to try. Uh, I think uh, the, that, the answer to that question really hinges on whether or not there's anything more to come out of this. So the RCMP, I think, is taking a look at this, and in the event that they decide to go forward with any kind of, you know, any kind of criminal investigation, charges, anything that comes out of it, that will obviously change uh, the, the story quite drastically, depending on what happens on that front. If, on the other hand, uh, that's it, and pretty much, uh, you know, Ford has come out and said, look, I'm sorry, we're not going ahead with this, we're drawing a line under it. Uh, he's got quite a bit of time before the next election, and so there, there, it's likely that he's going to be able to turn the page on this. Now, the opposition is going to want to be able to make as much hay on this as possible, but if that's the whole story, they're going to have less and less to work with as time goes on. 
All right. So from the political professor standpoint, Andrew, I mean, you know, it seems that we have government that doesn't listen at times, um, uh, reading off different pages, not sitting at the same kitchen table with the issues that Canadians are, whether you're comparing federal, polit- uh, provincial, what have you. I'm blurring all of that right now. Uh, is this a positive for him? Because he took something that was incredibly controversial. He said one thing, he changed it. Then he said another thing and then he changed it. But at the end of the day, he made his mistake. He changed it to move on. We're not used to seeing that. Does that stand out for uh, Ontarians at all or Canadians? I don't think this was a good week for the Conservatives, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't think that this issue is going to do much uh, to help them. I mean, the apology, I thought, was interesting just because, if anything, it was a little unusual that it was an apology for the entire idea, right? And we, we've seen politicians apologize sort of generally on behalf of the country or on behalf of the province, and we've certainly seen them apologize for you know personal conduct that they kind of get caught from. But it's a little rare to see a politician say the whole idea here was kind of from nose to tail, poorly thought out, and we're not going to go ahead with it. Now, I think he's going to say this demonstrates that, you know, I have the capacity to recognize when I'm wrong and I've apologized and we've sort of moved forward. So there is a bit of that spin on it. But I still think it was has been uh, kind of a tough week, given that he's lost two cabinet members. And, you know, there is possibly more still to come on this story. Uh, that being said, most can't name the uh, members of the opposition, leaders of the opposition right now. Does anybody care about something you didn't do? Uh, well, at this point, I think it's connected. You got to think about how far away the election is right now. So, I mean, as much as they're going to try to to make hay out of this, uh, I think the the stakes would be a little higher if we were heading into an election or one was just over the horizon. But it's not for the most part. So, the opposition, I think, is in the process of getting itself organized. I think the conservatives know that they've got a little bit of time on this one. So, the apology, I think, serves the function of saying, "Look, we recognize we've made a mistake. We're moving forward on this one on other issues." And there's going to be some time for them to do that. So I think they're hoping they'll be able to capitalize on the, the rope that they still have. Do you think, Andrew, that this debate is cut and dry, black and white? It's over now. It's done. Or again, Canada continues to grow. They, you know, we've got 20 to 40 years worth of land we can build houses on before we touch it. Does this debate need to continue? Uh, what happens 20, 40 years from now? Uh, well, the, the debate might continue over the next 20 to 40 years, but I think it's dead for right now. I think it's very yeah. clear that at least for this, uh, for the rest of this term, the Conservatives are going to go absolutely nowhere near the Green Belt yeah. in terms of uh, developing it. And the opposition has already made that their policy. So I think as far as uh, the legislature is concerned, for the next couple of years, the Green Belt is uh, pretty safe. Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law with the University of Toronto. Andrew, thank you uh, so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. The Prime Minister is driving a school bus. It's going screaming down a mountain hill with no brakes. He's got a blindfold on. His hands are in the air. And the bus is bouncing off the guardrails and sparks are flying. And he's yelling, "Wee!" Is that too much? Uh, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. He's here now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. So based on your vision, I'm the guy who watches the car crash and then tells you about it. Is that it? I, I don't know. What is life like in Ottawa today? We're referring to Speaker of the House. He seems like a really nice guy, genuine guy. Boy, I felt sorry for him today, falling on the sword again. Uh, not again, but another situation of it. And uh, he seems like a nice guy and all of that. But again, my question is, is like, how does this happen? How does this happen? And you can't blame one guy, can you? 
Oh, well, so many, so much wrapped up in that two questions. How does this happen to Kenny Blade, one guy? So, in the um, let, let's start with Anthony Rota is a nice guy, and part of the reason he's probably not gone right now, Scott, is he's hoping that the reservoir of goodwill that exists for him in all political parties, because he's well liked across the board, that's often how you end up at speaker, will somehow find a way to uh, turn into a river of healing. Not going to happen. I would be shocked if Mr. Oda is still the speaker by tomorrow morning, because I think he's going to come to the conclusion that he will need to resign. How does this happen? Well, in the weird world of the Parliament of Canada, it is Mr. Rhoda himself who designates who gets to be recognized in the House of Commons and who doesn't get to be recognized in the House of Commons. That is true. That is not Trudeau government spin. The thing, however, that is strange to your bus analogy is here you have in the parliament on that day, Vladimir Zelensky, one of the most um, protected people in the world. <laughs> yes. And when you, when you have somebody like that in your country, in your house of parliament, there are usually multiple security checks about the people that are present. Now, I don't know. Scott, if somebody saw this gentleman and saw that he was 98, he would not obviously be a physical threat. And just assume because he was 98, they didn't do any background checking. And as a consequence, all this happened. Uh, That may have been what the case was, but I would say this to you. It was only 2014, as we know, that two people died here on Parliament Hill when there was the attack on Parliament Hill. And security was supposed to be better and vetting was supposed to be better. So at some level, it's not beyond the realm to question security vetting service, which does rest with the government of Canada, not just the parliament of Canada. Uh, NDP want him to step down. How should the prime minister respond to this? Because even Champagne said, hang on, I have the quote somewhere, um, um, the speaker has some thinking to do. What the heck does that say? Well, I think they want him to go on his own accord. The of course court, they do. Well, because what's the practical political problem? Anthony Rota is a liberal. He's a liberal MP. He's well-liked, as I said. Justin Trudeau, as you know, had a not an easy go with his caucus in London, Ontario, what, 10 days ago? He's struggling in the polls. So if he all of a sudden boots Anthony Rota or is seen to boot Anthony Rota for his own benefit or encourage the booting of Anthony Rota for his own benefit, He'll get his MPs backs up. Also, if he overtly looks to remove Mr. Rhoda, he puts himself in the story that he's tried to stay out of by saying this is Mr. Rhoda's fault and Mr. Rhoda's fault alone. So that's kind of the gymnastics that Trudeau is trying to do there uh, to stay out of this mess. Because, again, what is what is what was the story that led last week? It was India and Canada calling out the Indians for apparently being involved in an assassination of a Canadian citizen in Canada. That's about security. Now, here we have a global embarrassment. Vladimir Zelensky is sitting in the House of Commons with a former Nazi, well, once a Nazi, always a Nazi, who's being honored by the Parliament of Canada. Uh, How can the PM look to Canadians or even in the mirror and say, we don't hold some responsibility here? 
Well, he already has. So, I, I, I again, I, I don't know if he – I think he's hoping that people will understand the practical and technical definition of this. But the conservatives are going to keep pushing this. You heard, and I think you played a clip or somebody played a clip of Andrew Scheer, the former speaker, now the conservative deputy leader, making the case, well, somehow the government of Canada is responsible I don't think, uh, despite, again, the practical aspects of this, where it is, in fact, the speaker, that Trudeau is is blameless. I, again, I do have to think there's a security mistake somewhere, and that is yeah. with the government yeah. of Canada. NDP wants to see him resign. Where are they on all of this, considering they hold the trigger here? Uh, they and the bloc are asking for him to resign. Um and again, yeah, that's all they can. Uh, they're not going to withdraw their support of the confidence agreement over this, but they're going to try and distance themselves from the liberals and all of this and the embarrassment of all of this. So they they move first to do that again. I'd be really shocked if Rhoda isn't gone by the morning. Even somebody like a Christia Freeland, who uses her Ukrainian ancestry to to uh, promote policy within the government how does she justify this well i don't think she can i think she uh, probably privately at first has reached out to anthony rota if they have a relationship and if this continues if mr rota is still there tomorrow if i'm wrong for the next couple of days then i think you're going to see people like friedland and others and would-be leadership contenders like anita and ann speak out and say mr rota you need to go there's some they could. I don't know if they can. Again, I'm not a parliamentary procedural expert. Thanks be to God, because I'd need a lobotomy if I was. But uh, hmm. there, there could. I, I don't know if they can force a motion on the uh, on whether the, whether the House has confidence in the Speaker without that being a full confidence motion. So somebody smarter than I who knows House procedure can answer that one for you. Um, you know, we're having guests on today and we're still talking about the India thing of last week. And I've got to kind of stop that to talk about this story. Um, you know, prior to that, it was Chinese Communist Party interference in two elections. No public inquiry. David Johnston falling on the sword. Um, uh, Marco Mendicino, the cabinet shuffle, all of that stuff. And it goes back to Jody Wilson-Raybould. How, how, how does this affect... Um, how, do, how is he managing things? He's not. Well, wouldn't it be good to be a sword manufacturer? You could make a lot of money selling swords to Trudeau for his cabinet and his people. Uh, how many, how many are left though? <laughs> well, look, I can just tell you what our data says. And look, our abacus data continues to show that, you know, the prime minister is losing the confidence of Canadians. Our last poll uh, last week, I believe it was, 15%, the Conservatives had a 15% lead over the Liberals. The change number was 81%, you know, so he's not. Um, and uh, and I don't know, we haven't collected any data since the India announcement, if that made a difference. Anyway, this is not going to help the government. It's not just Anthony Rhoda who's going to wear this, at least in public opinion. The, quit, the trick is, how long does it in the public and does it make a difference? Uh, I heard a pundit talking, talking about India last week saying that the only way this would flush with the Indian government is if Trudeau was to step aside, uh, which obviously people have been talking about here for uh, a few weeks or months or so. Is there more pressure for him to do that? Will he need to do that to, to clear the air here? No, not with this. 
Um, no, I don't think so with this because they they are again him or they're tailoring this as a as a, the speaker's error and the speaker is allowing them. Mr. Oda is allowing them to do that. Um, but you know, he, he, Mr. Trudeau can read data as well as anybody else. If there comes a point over the next number of months where he sees he can't win, I don't imagine he's going to stay around to lose. If you're a liberal, how are you viewing this? <laughs> you got to be crying. I mean, you you have to be wanting to pull your head out, hair out because you haven't been able to. You're a diehard liberal. You want to break. You just want to break. You want yeah. something to break your way. And now you have this global embarrassment and the speaker happens to be a well-liked liberal. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not your happiest of days. No great big C ordinary day song playing for you on this. <laughs> Tim Powers, Chairman Suma Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, uh, the world that is Ottawa, and he's there. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, buddy. Bye. I was using the analogy that uh, having the prime minister in control is like being on a school bus going down a mountain road without any brakes. Uh, and the prime minister is a blindfold on and his hands on the air uh, off the steering wheel. And the bus is banging off each guardrail. Sparks are flying. Kids are screaming. And he's yelling, "Wee!" So whether it's, you know, the Speaker, India, uh, David Johnston, private uh, public inquiries, <laughs> Marco Mendicino, Jody Wilson-Raybould, how many people can this man go through? I'm talking about the Prime Minister, not Scott Radley, but he's going to be joining us coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. You know where the Prime Minister is not yelling, we? In question period. Which yeah, which today I know. seemed like I know. he was in Ottawa. Apparently, he had another meeting scheduled. Uh, in a day like this, when your party is about to get attacked and obliterated, do you not yes. cancel your meeting and show up to be the guy who stands front and center? To, I mean, it's like the general saying on the day of battle, oh, by the way, I've got another meeting today. Like, I'm not going to be into battle with you. So just Or like going... There. Or like going surfing when it's the first Truth and Reconciliation Day, but well, I digress. No, but it's you'd just think, it, it was, you'd think that you'd think he would be there to at least support the speaker. Yeah, to, to well to to support whoever. I mean, the speaker. Let's not forget. I know they've worked very hard today to say, well, the speaker is independent. The speaker ran as a liberal and is a liberal party yeah, member. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, I just, I cannot believe that under the circumstances with this, especially if the prime minister is of the opinion that he and his party did nothing wrong, yeah, which apparently is the position. How are you not there? This is one of those ones where you tell whoever it was, I think he was meeting with a, a, a premier. You, you, you say, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm sure you can understand. We'll do it a little later tonight. We'll have dinner tonight. We'll do something else, but I, I got to be there for question period today. It's really important. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this. So you let the rest of your staff. I know. How would you feel if around? you are the other, what, how would you feel if you're the rest of the liberals that have to sit in the house and defend this person? Yes. And, and take the abuse. And here's the other part about this. And we're going to be talking about this on the show and I, maybe we'll get some answers. Maybe we won't, because I don't know that we know everything about this, but uh, you know, I know the, the point has been made that, well, you know, the liberals didn't know who was in the, uh, the mm -hmm. House of Commons on that day. And so they didn't really know about this guy. All right. 
you have a leader of the world in Zelensky who's in the <laughs> yes. building, whose country yes. is at war. You are yes. responsible to protect this man's life. There could, and I'm not being hyperbolic, there could be Russian snipers. If you have just opened the door to say anybody can walk into the visitors, the, the yeah. literally if it's wide open and we're not going to check anybody, you could have Russian snipers walk in there or operatives. Are you honestly going to tell me? that somebody in the government yeah. did not know yeah. who was going to be there as a visitor. Yeah. There is no exactly. way that's feasible. There's no way that is credible. That can't. Even if that's the, and if even that if is that's the case, the duty, Scott, holy cow, if that is the case, if yeah, you have yeah. got Zelensky there and no, no security whatsoever, what in the world are you doing? And, you know, whether it's uh, the speaker's fault, this, that, or the other, you're the government of the day. It's your job, especially after what happened a few years ago, to keep everybody there safe, members as well as presidents from who are in countries fighting wars and such. And it, it, it amazes me that somebody from the prime minister's office, somebody in charge, didn't say, all right, let's see the list, because everybody has to provide one. And even the speaker, let's check this. Mm. Let's do a simple Google search, because it took all of 30 seconds for everybody to realize who he was, yet the government had absolutely no idea. And you're telling me that that whole, the whole introduction, the whole experience was Zelensky bringing him in, that there's not a rundown of what's going to happen? That doesn't make any sense. I'll tell you something, Scott. On Friday night, my buddy and I were in Toronto. I had to go to Roy Thompson. I didn't have to. I went to Roy Thompson Hall for a premiere. Uh, Sean Menard, local filmmaker, great new documentary film was uh, his premiere. Anyway, beside the point. Got out, took the GO train in, got out at Union Station, didn't even realize that the Prime Minister and Zelensky were at Roy, at uh, the, Royal, uh, the um, Royal York Hotel right across the street. So hmm. we walk in and there are literally 25 giant black SUVs all idling on front street, which of course is because of climate change. We have to leave them to idle. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> I, you, there were uh, hundreds of police and security. There were SUVs filled with militia, like military people. There were yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, motorcycles everywhere. You're telling me that that is the level of security you are offering when you go to Royal York, but at the house of commons, there is yes. zero, none, yeah. zero. It makes yeah. no sense. And if there was zero, the prime minister should have been at question period to simply say the, uh, the government, or at least the bureaucracy, or at least the security apparatus blew this so magnificently that we are calling an immediate inquiry to find out how we could have a leader who is at war in our protection, who had no protection. One way or another, this makes no sense. Something has gone horribly awry. I agree. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Do we really want to ask for Prime Minister to resign? Are we nuts? Do we want Freeland in his place? Really? <laughs> 